Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John are going to discuss Acts chapter 4. They'll be talking about Peter and John before the council, the believers all praying together and asking for boldness, and those early disciples having all things in common. We would like to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. This week we just posted a new psalm chant for Psalm 23, and here's a bit of what that chant sounds like. Yahweh is my shepherd, nothing shall I lack. In green pastures he makes me lie down, beside quiet waters he leads me. My soul he restores, he leads me in righteous paths for his name's sake. So if you'd like to listen, sing, and read along with that chant, please check out the link in the show notes and subscribe. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are sharpened by this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Acts chapter 4. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure that the Recording continues and everything gets packaged up and delivered to our audience. We've been in the middle of a series of studies on the book of Acts, and last week we looked at Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is the beginning of a narrative that doesn't come to a conclusion until kind of the middle or late in toward the middle of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 3 begins with Peter and John going to the temple and healing a man who is lame from his mother's womb. And that provokes a reaction from the crowd. Peter speaks to the crowd, and we looked at that portion of the story last week. In the beginning of chapter 4, the leaders of the Jews, uh, the temple guard, the Sadducees, the priests, learn about what's happening in the portico of Solomon where Peter's preaching, and they come and lay hands on the apostles and take them to jail until they can hold a trial. So that's a continuation of the story at the beginning of chapter 4, and that continues with the trial. And then we get to the verse 22 of chapter 4, and uh, there's another reference to the man who was born lame. Uh, verse 22 mentions that he was 40 years old. We talked about that, that last week, that age last week and its significance. But that reference back to the original miracle kind of closes out the story of the lame man. Although chapter 4 really continues, the next scene is of the apostles praying in reaction to the persecution that they're experiencing from the Jewish leaders. So th- this is really a continuation of the narrative that we started last time. But uh, here we have, again, a, a continuation of the pattern that we talked about last time, which is this intensification of conflict between the apostles and the Jewish leaders, a conflict that in part has to do with the future of Israel and the Jews. And it's a conflict where the, the people are going to have to decide who they're going to choose, which name are they going to follow? Are they going to choose the name of Jesus? Are they going to follow the Jewish leaders? 5,000 of them, at least, make that decision in Acts 4.4. We learned that there are another 5,000 that are added to those who believe, and uh, the church continues to grow. That'll be a pattern that we'll see throughout the book of Acts 
that the church continues to expand even in the midst of persecution. It's not that the persecution comes and then once it's done, then the church expands, but uh, the church expands while the persecution is going on and the persecution actually gives opportunities as it does here for Peter to preach in a new setting. So that kind of lays out some of the groundwork that we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter four today. When Christ first sends out his apostles um, in the book of Luke and the other gospels, he sends them out and then they return. And shortly after that, he retreats with them into the wilderness where they're followed by a great multitude. And then there's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And on that occasion, as well as this, there are 5,000 men um, and just counting the men. And I wonder whether that particular event is a movement from their evangelistic work to the task of shepherding a flock. Mm. And Christ very much, I think, puts forward their ministry, that they're the ones that are going to, through his agency, provide for this great multitude. And the fact that we have this 5,000 number, and it's just counting the men in the same way at the beginning of their ministry, it suggests to me that they're supposed to look back and see that Christ had prepared them for this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that shepherding work, if if we can skip ahead to the end of the chapter, that comes to the foreground. Uh, after we have the trial and the prayer, then beginning at verse 32, it mentions, uh, it goes back to the congregation of one heart and soul, great power with the apostles, uh, giving witness, preaching. And then this, again, a reference to the uh, generosity and hospitality within the church people being willing to, to sell their property. So uh, we do move from uh, that evangelistic to the shepherding focus in the course of the chapter. Yeah, notice what's going on at the end there too, is we talked about this kind of transfer of allegiance, this transfer of power, uh, transfer of, uh, of authority to the apostles and to the church. And at the end of the chapter there, um, everybody is, is giving their offerings but they're not going to the temple, which in the Old Testament, of course, is the footstool of Yahweh. They are being laid at the apostles' feet and then being distributed by them. So there's no, there's the, the storehouses of the temple are no longer the repository of the offerings of the people. But now uh, it's the church and it's the rulers, the new rulers of the new temple, the apostles, who are overseeing and distributing um, the wealth that's being mm. given to the Lord through these offerings. At the beginning of the chapter, um, you have the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees coming, and they're, they're upset because the apostles are teaching the people in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Um, and they see this as central to um, the message of the apostles. And of course, Peter in verse 15 mentioned the fact that the, the prince of life, Jesus, God raised him from the dead. But also, uh, Peter is offering to the people some sort of new life, some sort of restoration, uh, refreshment. And, and it's, it appears like this phrase, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, um, is not just about the end of history and the resurrection of our bodies, but also mm-hmm. about new life being offered then and there, because all of this, both these chapters uh, keep coming back to this man who has been restored at the beautiful gate. And when that happened, Peter says to him in verse six, 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, mm -hmm. rise up and walk. And he took, took him by the right hand and raised him up. And so he's made whole, he's resurrected, he's leaping and walking and praising God. And that appears to be a symbol, a sign of something that all Israel could experience if they just if they just pledge allegiance to the name of Jesus, if you will, they can find this resurrection. And that's what the priests and uh, the temple guards and everybody are not happy about. There's a similarity with uh, Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, which places this living sign of Jesus' resurrection power in the midst of Israel. And the same thing is happening with the lame man here. Verse 14 says he's standing right there with them in the middle in the middle of the trial apparently he's he's right there with Peter and J Peter and John so he keeps popping up and they need to they need to make sure that uh, when Lazarus is raised they decide they need to kill not only Jesus but Lazarus because uh, Lazarus is as much an offense as Jesus is the layman is playing a similar role here and then there's the title given to Jesus in the previous chapter the author of life which seems then significant he's bringing life here also strikes me as something to aspire to just the accusations which are leveled against peter they can't deny the sign um towards the end of the chapter people can't deny the good works which the early church are doing what they object to is the message and while i guess we wouldn't want the christian message to be objected to if if that was all people objected to and and couldn't deny the good works of the church that that wouldn't be a bad position to be in. <laughs> Uh, enviable the fact it's not just presented as a dramatic miraculous event that jesus is raised but in him they are declaring the resurrection of the dead this is the culmination of history and it's being realized in this particular figure um it's, it suggests that they've already come to a very mature understanding of what christ's resurrection means it's not just god vindicating this individual it's um Christ as the first fruits of the dead, of the general resurrection. Yeah, and you think back to the end of Luke, where Jesus spends the 40 days teaching them. They have 40 days of intensive course uh, where they, they learn the significance of Jesus' resurrection. We've spoken a fair bit last time around about Jesus' name. It's interesting that each time Jesus' name is mentioned, or at least some of the time here, is Jesus of Nazareth. And the associations with that in the gospels are a place of obscurity and a place of shame to some extent being despised and yet here it's it's owned very proudly as a, as a title on, on the lips of the disciples isn't it mm. and then in the earlier chapters you have reference in both chapter one and two to the fact that the disciples are galileans yeah i wonder if the the nazarene um i'm trying to make sense of uh, the way that uh, matthew refers to Jesus' residence in Nazareth as a fulfillment of prophecy. I think uh, I have surmised that that depends on a pun between Nazareth and Nazir, which is the branch that uh, is going to come from the stump of Jesse, the branch that is the anointed king. And I wonder if there's a there's a play of that sort going on that, uh, yes, Nazareth is the obscure, out-of-the-way place that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. But now... Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's proven to be uh, the Nazir, the, the branch that's uh, sprung up from the dead and is now bearing fruit. 
Alistair mentioned last time um, the second opportunity, uh, the second witness that the uh, people of Israel, especially the leaders, get. And Peter in verse 8 here um, is filled with the Holy Spirit and says to them, rulers and people and elders, um, and then he goes on to um, uh, tell them that sal- there's, there's salva- uh, salvation in no other name. It's the name of Jesus. And this is, I think this is the fulfillment, um, especially in Luke Acts, of back in Luke 12, where Jesus had said to them, you know, you know, you can blaspheme against me, the Son of Man, and be forgiven. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there's no forgiveness. In, the, in that context, in Luke 12, uh, immediately after that, he says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so here is Peter fulfilling that and giving them this second opportunity. They have indeed blasphemed against the Son of Man, but the question is, will they also now reject the second witness, the Holy Spirit, and not be forgiven? The reaction of the Jewish leaders is alarming. What they're objecting to is, uh, at root, a lame man being healed, and that becoming a a cause it's big news around Jerusalem because this man was well known as a beggar at the temple, but they apparently have no care for the healing of lame men. Uh, if that interferes with their position, is a threat to their position, then whatever is going on, they want to suppress it. So the it's alarming, but it's also a uh, a recognizable human instinct of uh, a turf protection, you know. When uh, and, and religious leaders, uh, like other leaders, are worried about protecting turf, and even even if uh, there's something on the scene that's doing good and healing and and uh, benefiting people, if it's a threat to our position, then we're likely to react the way the Jewish leaders do. Yeah, initially it seems like they may be open to the idea of assimilating it within their authority doesn't it so in verse 7 the initial question is by what power or by what name did you do this and it seems like they might have wanted to take credit for it at that point but obviously peter then precludes that as an option at which case the opposition comes and you then get the quotation of psalm 118 about the stone being rejected which i find just a, a very interesting reference one of the fascinating things is that this text is discussed in various rabbinic passages and it said there that the rabbis that by the rabbis that the jewish people have a history of rejecting god's chosen messianic figures so the fact that david is initially overlooked is cited and the fact that moses is initially rejected by um the jewish people is is cited and the psalm is sort of uh exposited in in light of that and it's quite remarkable that that's present in rabbinic literature and its context also seems quite relevant in in what's happened in uh chapter three so the fuller context in uh psalm 118 is open to me the gates of righteousness that i may enter through them this is the gate of the lord and the righteous shall enter through it which is exactly what's happened in chapter three and i I guess it portrays the healing there not only as physical healing but as as righteousness Mm. This confrontation has also occurred before in a slightly different form in chapter 20 of Luke, where 
they ask Jesus where his authority comes from. And then he asks them about John the Baptist and says that when they do not answer him in a satisfactory way, that he will not tell them where his authority comes from. And then he gives the parable of the wicked vine dressers. And this verse is the culmination of that. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I wanted to go back to your comment about the spirit giving Peter boldness in the uh, in this kind of situation, as Jesus had promised. Uh, the other another dimension of that is verse thirteen, where uh, in immediate reaction to the to Peter's speech, uh, the Jewish leaders recognized their confidence, their their free speaking, parhesia, and they're amazed at it because these men are not trained. Uh, and what gives them that confidence, that free freedom of speech, is the fact that they've been with Jesus. So it's the associate, association with Jesus and then the gift of the Spirit that gives them this ability to openly uh, proclaim his name in this public arena. Do you think, do you all think, that sometimes this reference in verse 13 is um, overworked, um, uneducated, common men? Because it appears like in context, back in verse 5 and 6, you got Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John. You have all the elites of, um, of Israel and the Sanhedrin. Uh, including the Sadducees and everything. And the contrast appears to be those who are like the authorized elite rulers and um, Peter and John, who are common, uneducated in the sense that they're not, they don't travel in these circles. Um, But it's, it's hard, it's hard to read anything in the New Testament and believe that these, these men are not highly educated in some sense, just in terms of, not, not with degrees uh, or with uh, specific schools of thought in Jerusalem or in Judea, but these are some smart dudes. Uh, and I think sometimes verse 13 is a little bit, there's a little bit too much emphasis on this out of context. How, how have you heard it applied then, Jeff? Oh, well, th- these are common fishermen who, you know, didn't have any, basically any education at all. They're, you know, just rubes that somehow the Spirit gives this uh, miraculous knowledge to. Um, that just doesn't appear to me to be the case. Uh, uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were chosen by Jesus because they had some natural, uh, you know, intelligence, uh, and not just natural intelligence, but uh, they were probably raised pretty well and knew the languages and uh, and th- their scriptures. Um, I just don't think we should apply it in 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 wrong ways. So, in the sense that they're not of the scribal class, it doesn't mean that they're right. illiterate. Yes, yes, yeah. You you could imagine there could be a lot of snobbery going on here. Here are some scribes from Jerusalem and by contrast there are some Galileans speaking in a sort of broad Galilean accent you could well imagine it could have that sense rather than yeah yeah something about the people's unless unless we think somehow that the Holy Spirit in inspiring and in uh, uh, giving men the ability to write these this history the book of Acts or any of their epistles unless we believe that the Holy Spirit just completely over overrid or over I don't know what the verb is was overriding their uh, consciousness uh, these works that they've produced are some of the most uh, 
intricate and uh, and profound and dense literary works in the history of the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and to think that they're just, you know, uh, rubes from the, the countryside, uh, that just doesn't work. Alabama, for example. Yeah, I, I wanted to say Alabama, but I, I stayed. I did that. <laughs> yeah, some neighboring state to Alabama, perhaps. I filled it in. <laughs> I filled it in for you, Jeff. I knew you were thinking. <laughs> I wonder whether, in that particular, there is something about the fact that they are speaking with such eloquence and boldness that is evidence that. It's not just the fact that they're Galileans. They have been with Jesus. Something has changed with them because they've been with that one. Um, in the Old Testament, the calling of prophets is often associated with a sense of the insufficiency of their speech, whether that's Moses, who's aware of his stutter mm. or his um, halting yeah. tongue, whether it's um, in Isaiah, the uncleanness of his lips, or I think also in Ezekiel, that he's being sent to a people not of hard speech, but the, to the elite of Jerusalem. And it seems that there's a shift from the Hebrew, some have suggested a shift from the a rougher Hebrew in the first chapter, after he ha- takes in the scroll, that there's a, a softening, as it were, or um, a great eloquence to his speech. I'm not sure I have enough to judge that. I'm sure James will be able to give a far more informed opinion. But the Lord dealing with people's tongues to prepare, prepare them for a prophetic ministry, the coming of mm-hmm. a tongue of flame upon the disciples' heads, and then the eloquence that flows from that, the fire comes out through their literal tongues. Um, it seems that that might be part of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it, the other part of it too is I don't think it's just the matter of the intelligence of their speech or the eloquence, but it's you think of, you think about the setting here, Verses 5 and 6 describe rulers, elders, scribes, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who are of the high priestly descent. And now you have these men who are not part of the scribal class, as Alistair said, and they're in that setting. And yet they are willing, uh, they're capable of speaking openly and boldly in that setting. And I think that's what the parhesia connotes is not just, it's not, it's not only eloquent speech, but it's bold speech. It's a freedom of speech in that in the face of that kind of a pressure, and they're not cowed by the by the setting, uh, and that's part of what the, the spirit is doing for them, giving the giving them the confidence to speak uh, before kings and rulers. Mm. Yeah, and it's pretty clear that there's a lot of envy here uh, from the part of the rulers that that comes out in the next chapter, chapter five, um, when uh, the high priest and Everybody who's with him is is jealous and arrested the apostles and put him in the prison. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opens the door and tells them to go out and speak all the words of this life. And, and it's like, okay, this priestly class here is now being uh, supplanted by a new priestly class. And it's the angel of Yahweh, of course. Angels aren't mentioned all that much in the book of Acts, but especially in these early chapters. Angels, of course, are the ones who mediated the truth to Israel, the law, and who were uh, the overseers, if you will, the tutors of Israel. So now we're being told by an angelic tutor, an angelic overseer, that it's not these guys, it's you. You go out now and be be the true priests. You go out and speak 
the words of this life to the people. Um, so this dynamic of jealousy of, uh, of, of who's who are the true priests in Israel is going to be resolved here. Uh, it's not the old uh, old family, the old class. It's the it's these new guys. It's the apostles. Perhaps one question we should be asking is how when all of the previous prophets had been assimilated into the ruling, ruling ideology and they'd built up the tombs of the prophets and the prophets had been, as it were, neutered in their message against the establishment. How is it that Jesus, that does not happen in his case? And it, it seems to me that's part of what's taking place here. The fact that Jesus can't just be subdued to the ideology of the rulers. He resists it. Right, and, and confers that same boldness to resist on the on the disciples. We can move on in the passage a little bit. Uh, uh, the reaction of the council is interesting. They're obviously in a quandary. On the one hand, they don't want Jesus, the name of Jesus proclaimed as the source of resurrection healing power um, because they, they know it's this Jesus that they denied and called for his death. On the other hand, there's a guy standing right there in the, in the middle of the council who used to be lame and isn't anymore. So they can't deny that a miracle took place. And so at this point, at least they figure that they can still intimidate and uh, command the, uh, the apostles to stop speaking about Jesus, which is what they settle on doing. There's no, no further punishment given here. The punishments are going to go, of course, again, intensify as you go through acts and the, the brutality of the reaction is going to increase. But here it's just they're released with a, a command not to uh, not to continue to preach in the name of Jesus, which Peter and John refuse to comply with. Yeah, there's a threat over their heads in future, isn't there, as well in, in verse 21. There's a, there's a nice sort of subtle agreement, I think, to the, just the consistency of the scriptures and the story and the way it fits together. In verse 19, Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen uh, you you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The the idea of sort of doing what is right in, in the sight of God is is a very Petrine um, phrase. I think think about how Jesus is a living stone um, rejected by men, but chosen in the sight of God, and how it talks about gentle and quiet spirit being valuable in the sight of God, and and so forth. Meanwhile, what we have seen and what we have heard is very johannine you know that which was from the beginning which we've heard which we've seen with our own eyes and and so forth and so in peter and john's joint phrase you get signatures of these two people and obviously the hypothesis that characters are concocted and letters and epistles are written on other people's behalf you wouldn't expect that level of agreement there's a real consistency to this interesting so are you suggesting multiple sources? There's a Johannine source for Acts 4 and a Petrine source <laughs> behind the text. And a community yeah. behind those. <laughs> you weren't. You weren't and, 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 yes, and that's I'm right. suggesting that the Johannine source was written by John and the Petrine source was written by John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, really, that's a really interesting point. You have those, uh, those uh, touchstones with the, with the epistles that these two men end up yeah. writing. Uh, any thoughts about the prayer that they uh, pray together with the rest of the church after they leave this assembly? One of the things which strikes me as significant about the quote of Scripture in verse 24 onwards is 
its initial application is to Herod and Pilate who have um, aligned themselves against Israel, I suppose. The the idea initially of the Gentiles raging and the people plotting in vain refers to um, sort of kings of the earth gathering against, for instance, so Joshua or David or, or or later kings. And here it seems very clearly stated that the Jewish rulers are effectively aligning themselves with the Gentiles and with historically the, the enemies of Israel. So they are found very much on the wrong side of this thing. It strikes me again, um, as it as it has uh, throughout these early chapters, how much scripture the apostles are using both in their sermons and now in a prayer. And in each case, they're as we're following the the hermeneutics that Jesus taught them in the forty days after his resurrection to see everything in the scriptures as foretelling the sufferings and the glory of the Christ and the proclamation of salvation to the Gentiles. And every time Peter quotes, he quotes from Deuteronomy 18 back in chapter 3, uh, the Lord shall raise up a prophet like me from your brethren. And Jesus is that prophet. We, we've already talked about the, the uh, Psalm quotation from Psalm 118, the stone that builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus himself quotes that in the Gospels, but Peter applies that now to Jesus. And now they're seeing Psalm 2 as uh, applying to their own situation, and the the characters in Psalm two are lining up with characters that they that they're um, with themselves and the characters that they're encountering. The sense of divine sovereignty in this particular um, prayer is remarkable. First of all, they've been in front of the ruling council of the people, and now they're speaking to a higher council, um, to God Himself, and their sense of confidence that arises from that is quite tangible in the way that they express themselves. And then the sense of divine sovereignty and providence, that no matter what these rulers decide, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and he moves it wherever he wishes. And beyond that, the themes that we might find in the story of Joseph, where on several occasions he refers to the fact that despite or irrespective of the intentionality of his brothers and other parties involved in his sufferings, the Lord has his intention and that is going to prevail. And even the intentions of those who sought him ill were used for the sake of the Lord's purpose. I wonder if I could just go back to your point, Peter, and, and also Jeff, that in Jesus we have modelled just this unique style of exegesis, I suppose, in the Old Testament itself, the application of the law is very often kind of uh, um, used to show the faults of the people to whom the prophets are speaking to. And they're saying, you've been commanded to do such and such a thing, um, but you are, you know, cheating the fatherless and mistreating the poor and, and so forth. But Jesus had this unique handling of the Old Testament. And it's obviously rubbed off on the disciples hasn't it and as they hear them exegete i wonder if it's it's not just the learning but there is something that they recognize in jesus's own treatment of scripture when they say they recognize that they had been with jesus i mean can you imagine the things you pick up from spending the best part of three years in, in jesus company hearing him read and exegete scripture and so forth there would be just this whole 
sort of style and and, and approach to things just opened up. Mm. Yeah, and and exegete uh, circumstances too. Mm. So the way that Jesus would assess what's happening in his ministry in the light of the scriptures. Yeah, that's a it, it that's a good point. It's not it's the it's the whole three years of training, not just the forty days after the resurrection. We might also think about the way Luke, throughout his gospel, foregrounds Jesus as a man of prayer. And as we've seen already in Acts, Luke is really wanting us to see that the prayer of the church propels its ministry. And here that the key um, event in this chapter is not so much the appearance before the council, but the prayer of the disciples. That continues that prominent theme within Luke's gospel, and then into the book of Acts, that the church is driven by this. And in response to that prayer, there's there's this um, mini Pentecostal event where the place is shaken. They're all filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak the Word of God with boldness. So there's an elements of Pentecost that occur in in response to that prayer. And they were filled with the Spirit in speaking to the council, exiting the council. They pray, and then they're once again filled with the Spirit, refilled with the boldness that they had before. So this, um, even while they're under the pressure of persecution, they're being filled and refilled with the Spirit to continue their witness. More than that, our little chapter headings in our English Bible screw things up. It's not just that they're filled with Spirit and boldness, it's that the same thing happens again that happened in Acts 2, is they start uh, selling things and having everything in common, so that, as Alistair just mentioned, this prayer then uh, is the catalyst uh, for not only their preaching and proclaiming, but also their coming together in unity again, and they're contributing uh, their offering, uh, so they're building up their uh, their resources, if you will, in opposition now to the temple, which is becoming more and more corrupt and irrelevant. I'd like you guys to, to talk about this, because um, you have, at the end of this chapter, uh, all the all these goods, all these uh, gifts, being laid at the apostles' feet, and dis- and then distributed. Again, I I can't help but think that uh, this is all about the new temple, the new storehouse of the the tithes mm-hmm. and offerings of God's people, and then also it ends with this. Um, reference to Joseph, who's Barnabas, and um, selling his field and laying at the apostles' feet. So it appears to be this this transition, like I said before, from the temple to the temple of living stones. And also, in addition to that, there's new leaders being added. So this prayer resulted in boldness for the apostles and the people being united and giving gifts. And now there's, there's, another, there's another man who's going to be added to this number, the first of many, of course, mm-hmm. as through Acts. And I, I find that just really helpful and significant. There seems to be a contrast here with Judas in chapter 1, doesn't there? He is said to acquire land with the reward of his wickedness in chapter 1 and verse 18, and that ends up very badly for him. But here there is land just freely given um, at the apostles' feet. That's an interesting connection for sure. Wow. 
Yeah, I think uh, Jeff, you're right about the temple. Con- the contrast with the temple. I'm putting thinking of the the final chapter of Leviticus, which is all about um, dedicating. Uh, property, animals, persons to the temple. You can consecrate them to the temple, and then uh, if you want to redeem them, then you have to pay a pay a fee to redeem them. But Leviticus indicates that that was a common practice that you would have, or at least a, an occasional practice that you'd have the opportunity to sanctify certain property for the use of the temple and the priests. Uh, and that certainly seems to be hap- what's happening here. And then we, as we go into chapter five next next time. One of the typological overlays of chapter five is the uh, incident with Achan in the in the book of Joshua. We haven't talked about Joshua much yet, but I think that that will bring it to the fore. That's all about that story is all about uh, Achan laying hold of Yahweh's property. Ananias and Sapphira are in the similar kind of they lie to the Holy Spirit, but they're also grasping things that they claim to be devoting to the Lord. So there's a violation of a kind of holy. There's a there's a sacrilege being committed. Which again puts it puts us in the realm of temple donations, I think. So I'm, I think that's right. In addition to the reference to the apostles' feet, which you've already mentioned, uh, there does seem to be this uh, notion of consecrating particular property to the use of the community, to the use of the living temple. It's interesting, Peter, that you mentioned Leviticus twenty-seven. I was thinking about that. There does seem to be a connection there. The way land can be donated to the priests. Interestingly, though, there it said that that land becomes holy and it kind of exits the realm of common circulation and goes into this consecrated status where only the priests can relate to it. And it seems almost to be the opposite here. We sometimes think of the opposite of holy as unholy, but in the system of Leviticus, that's not the way it works. The opposite of, of holy is common. And so there is this... Uh, common circulation of, of things like that and obviously that's stated in verse 32 here um everything was in common and so there seems this interesting merging of the idea that things are consecrated but at the same time they're not then just restricted to certain people they are in common and distributed among the body i wonder if there's a, an idea of the flatter structure of the new covenant where everyone knows the Lord from the least to the greatest and there is a, a royal priesthood rather than the sort of the more hierarchical nature of the old covenant. Within the mm-hmm. um, books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus in particular, I think, there is a deep concern that every Israelite participates in the fruit and the blessing and the Sabbath of the land. And that is expressed in a great many ways to ensure that someone's work doesn't come to futility by being sent out to war just after having planted a vineyard or built a house or married a wife. And also in situations such as the Sabbath year or the um, Feast of First Fruits or other events like the Tithe Feast um, and the Third Year Tithe, all of these are ways in which every single member of the people can share in the inheritance of the land. And that same concern is being fulfilled within the life of the early church which i think helps to see that this is always what israel was hoping for what god had intended for his people that there was this general experience of the blessing of god yeah so they're they're uh sharing together in the the gift of the spirit each uh, each of them with uh some uh spirit given capacity or gift that they can use to build up the common good they're also uh, you have the same uh, 
principle applying to their property. Uh, certain their, their property is under, under their control, but it's under their control for the sake of the common good. And for many, that involves selling what they have so they can share it out uh, and distribute it commonly. But yeah, as Alistair's saying, all of them are sharing in the benefits of this, whatever the equivalent of the New Covenant land is, uh, the spirit or the, or the community itself, all are prospering. All of them are taken care of and none has any need. Does anyone have any thoughts on why Barnabas is introduced to us at this point? It felt like the last couple of verses of chapter four were leading into chapter five, but that doesn't answer the specific question about why if Barnabas, because Barnabas becomes a, a player later on. Maybe we, should, maybe we should table that for the next time and pick up with uh, the end of chapter four. Yeah, Give I, us a couple of weeks to think about it. I guess the question also would be is why is his um, you know, name Joseph here mentioned and the fact he's a Levite and a native of Cyprus? Um, those all seem to be somewhat extraneous details. But you know there are no Yeah, I think they are yeah. I think they're <laughs> I think they are extraneous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why don't we why don't we plan to pick that up uh, next time? Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.